as they're making their way to the back, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 19. If, you're, uh, if you actually have a paper Bible, printed Bible, right? Can't assume these days, right? As opposed to one that glows on your phone. What you want to do is you want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 19, but then you also probably want to hold your place there and be ready to turn to Psalm chapter 59 because uh, we're going to be referring um, to Psalm 59 at a couple points uh, in our time this morning, probably up front, and then maybe once more at the end. So, First Samuel chapter 19. Pick up with me at verse 8. In the first seven verses, uh, Saul has told Jonathan and some of his other men to put David to death. Jonathan has interceded on David's behalf and has seemingly convinced Saul, his father, that David does not deserve to die, that he's an innocent man, that he's done good to Saul, and it looks like things have been settled down, and so we're picking up in uh, 19.8. When there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter, so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence. So that he stuck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. Michal took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me on his bed that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with a quilt of, goat, of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? You hearing a, a pattern? And Michal said to David, or said to Saul, David said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? And then just for good measure, verse 18, what did David do? what he's been doing. He fled and escaped. A lot of fleeing, a lot of escaping. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we ask now as we come to your word that you would uh, enlighten the eyes of our heart 
so that we not only see uh, what you would have us to see in your text, but that uh, in giving us sight, you would also give us the ability to love and enjoy what it is that you have here for us. We ask that as, uh, as we have an opportunity to look briefly into this episode of David's life, that you would further convince us of the loving kindness that you have in store for us such that you continue to protect us, even at times when we're unaware of your hand at work on our behalf. Thank you that we are safe and secure because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf and not because of anything that we have done to deserve your kindness to us. We have ultimate security and peace in that knowledge. God, is now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So 1 Samuel 19, 8 through 17, a miraculously ordinary escape. We don't have time to get into, get into all the details. What we, um, what we need is uh, some time like maybe before the worship service where you could go to a room and you could look in more depth and more detail at some of these passages, discuss it, study it, like a school classroom type setting. If we had something like that, we could dig in a little bit more. All right, hint, hint. But for our time here, we don't have time to do that. So let me, let me up front give you some sort of a, a big grid or framework, um, not just for our discussion this morning, but uh, for actually the rest of 1 Samuel and especially passages that deal with David. Uh, one of the things that we know from the Old and New Testament is that David in significant ways um, functions as a type of Christ. David is the anointed king that God raises up from an unknown place, from obscurity, and through this king brings about deliverance and salvation for his people from their enemies. He defends them, he executes justice and righteousness, and every king from David on is compared to David until we get to the person of Christ, who is a descendant of David, who also has been anointed by God to bring salvation to his people, albeit in a dramatically different and greater way. One of the things that we see going on in the story of David is one of the things that we see going on in multiple places in Scripture. But here it's especially interesting because David, we know, has already been anointed and chosen to be the next king. And so much of what we have in 1 Samuel from, say, chapter 16 or 17 on is charting David's life on his path to the throne. And if you were to take a step back and you were to look at David's path to the throne, the overall pattern or theme that you see when you look at First and Second Samuel is that David is anointed as king. He's marked out and identified. God has chosen him to be his man. But then David goes through years of humility and suffering and persecution before he's raised up to be seated on the throne. Does that sound familiar? So that in the New Testament, when Jesus arrives on the scene, Jesus comes and lives a life of humility and is persecuted unjustly. He suffers and dies, and then after 
humiliation and suffering, Jesus is highly exalted and is seated on his throne. And that, seeing that happen, that pattern develop in the life of David, being perfectly demonstrated in the life of Christ, then becomes a pattern for all of God's people. We have been marked out to rule and to reign with Christ in a coming kingdom. But our future rule and reign with Christ is going to be preceded, what's happening now, not by exaltation and glory, but by humility and suffering. First suffering, then glory. First humiliation, then exaltation. So what is God doing for David in the meantime? While David is making his way to the throne in humiliation, in deprivation, being persecuted unjustly, how is God showing his favor to David? One of the clearest ways that God shows his favor to David and continues to prove to David over and over again that in spite of his suffering, in spite of the difficulties of life, that God has not abandoned him, that God has not forsaken him, is simply by the fact that he saves David over and over and over and over again. As if he's making it very clear to David that because I have chosen you and because I have said that you will rule and reign, I will not allow anything ultimately to destroy you. I will do whatever is necessary to bring you to the determined end. So what we want to do in this passage this morning in verses 8 through 17, we want to look at David's escape, God's deliverance. We would, I just want to draw out three Observations, three points, three things that we can take away from seeing God's work in this passage. Number one, God delivers his people by ordinary means. We got this up on the screen. Here we come. There we go. God delivers his people by ordinary means. Some two or three times we have in this passage that David fled and escaped. David fled and escaped when Saul threw his spear at him. David escaped out of a window. He fled and escaped and he he ran to Samuel. It's interesting that in this passage, what's missing, which is there's no mention of God. Anyone notice that? That with all the running and escaping that David is doing, God is not mentioned in this passage anywhere. Now, hold your place here and go to Psalm 59. For the sake of time, we're just going to read a few verses up front and the last couple verses at the end of the psalm. Notice if you should have a heading for this psalm that gives you the event that David is reflecting on when he writes this psalm. Do you see it? David writes this psalm about the time when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. 
That's what we just read back in 1 Samuel 19. So David, writing out of that experience, says this. Read with me the first four verses, and then we're going to skip to the last two verses, 16 and 17. David, reflecting on that time, says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity, and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me. Not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see. So no mention of God in 1 Samuel 19 when we're getting the story about how David ran and escaped. David is doing all the acting. But when David looks back and writes on that event, what is David doing? David is calling out on the name of the Lord. And then at the end of the psalm, look at verses 16 and 17. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning, for you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness." Go back to 1 Samuel 19. Anyone see a stronghold in verses 8 through 17? Anyone see some sort of miraculous intervention that God enacts on David's behalf? In fact, one of the, one of the things that makes this even more strange is that if David had chosen to write about an event in which God did perform some sort of miraculous intervention, it happens in the very next scene. After David shimmies out the window and runs in the dead of night to get away from Saul, he runs to find Samuel, and Saul hears that he's taken up with Samuel, and he sends men to get David from there. But then there's this strange scene where all of the men that Saul sends, they get struck by the Spirit of the Lord and they start to prophesy. They're incapacitated. And Saul sends more servants and the Spirit incapacitates them and he sends a third group. And finally, Saul goes himself and even Saul is hindered, is stopped dead cold by the, by the Spirit. That would be the one to write about, wouldn't it? If you're going to write about the fact that God is this strong deliverer and your stronghold, isn't that the event that you're going to write about? Not the one where you're jumping out of a window like some teenager breaking curfew. I think one of the reasons that we have what appears to be, what appears to be a discrepancy, that on the one hand, David looks like He's left to his own ingenuity and devices, and that he barely escapes because luck is just on his side. That's what it looks like in 1 Samuel chapter 19. Saul misses him with a spear. Whew, that was lucky. David runs out the window before the men come into the house to take him. Whew, 
That was lucky. But then when you come to Psalm 59 and you see that David looks back on that and he credits the Lord as the one who delivers him and the Lord is the one who's been his stronghold, I think one of the things that we're to understand is that when it comes to David's escape, and for that matter we could say for the escape that God enables any of his people to encounter, there are no ordinary escapes. If you want to talk about ordinary escapes, you might as well talk about ordinary miracles. Right? Because when David looks back at this, he looks back and he says, I went out the window, but the Lord delivered me. Have you ever thought about the fact that God's faithfulness to you and faithfulness to me happens daily through ordinary miracles that look like normal events. David needs to escape death. What does the Lord do? He gives him a wife and he gives him a window. (laughs) Is it possible that one of the problems that we run into is that when we find ourselves in similar situations where we're in desperate need of help, when we are crying out to God to answer us and to deliver us, is that more often than not what we're eager for And I'm not saying we're wrong to want this, understand. What we're eager for is sort of the the latter part of 1 Samuel 19, the, the miraculous, spiritual, signs and wonders kind of deliverance. And that because that's what we're looking for and because that's what we want, we miss the fact that God is every minute of every day every hour, in every circumstance and situation that God is faithfully rescuing you from danger and preserving your life and you don't even recognize it. You think you just got lucky and found a window to slide out of. Husbands, dare we say it? God has faithfully preserved you and me by giving us a wife. You better listen. (laughs) But that works the other way too. Women, God preserves and keeps you through an ordinary man called your husband. Kids, teenagers, young adults, have you ever stopped to think about the fact that the way that God preserves you, actually, he set up your preservation before you even took your first breath, it's called your parents. And that through advice and counsel, like, hey, don't do that, go this way, or you better run now and not hang around, you better flee sin and immorality, that those are ways that God is sovereignly, supernaturally delivering you from destruction and death. So 
So that over and over and over again, one of the things that we see in Scripture is that God is perfectly pleased to save and deliver his people. Yes, he does it through miraculous means. We're we're not denying that. But there are also plenty of times when God makes it clear that he is very content to save his people and preserve them through very ordinary, normal means. So that we're looking to be rescued from sin and temptation and fear and guilt. And do you know what that deliverance looks like? It looks like picking up a book and reading. That's your deliverance. God is going to preserve you and keep you from giving up, from throwing in the towel spiritually, from abandoning your faith. Do you know how he, how he saves you, how he keeps us? It looks very normal. It looks like this. It looks like getting together with other broken, mixed up people that God has claimed for himself and being able to encourage one another in the faith. So that if we had the eyes of faith, we would be awestruck at how God has supernaturally, providentially gone ahead of us to provide us for everything that we need to be saved from destruction, from unbelief, from our enemies, from doubt, from fear. But we're just not, we're just not seeing Number two, God delivers his people by ordinary means. Number two, God delivers according to his grace. Go back to Psalm 59. In Psalm 59, David says this, At the end of verse 3 and end of verse 4, David says that these men who are attacking me, they do so, it's not for my transgression, it's not account of, of anything that I've done, no sin on my part, O Lord, for no guilt of mine, Psalm 59, 4, they run and set themselves against me. You hear what David is saying? I'm, I'm being persecuted without cause. Unjust. I haven't done anything to deserve this. And David's right. David had done nothing to cause Saul to hate him. David had done nothing to to make himself a threat to Saul. Saul had no reason to seek David's life. David, as far as his stance to his enemies were concerned, David was an innocent man. But when we say that David was an innocent man as far as his standing with his enemies, does that mean that David was innocent in the sense of pure, holy, undefiled? There's no error, no transgression that can be leveled against David? You 
You know how we know that David may be innocent as far as his enemies are concerned, but cannot claim full innocence before God? How, how does David's wife fool Saul's men? With a what? An idol. Where, where does this idol come from? Does, do they run out to the corner idol factory, pick one up, bring it back, throw it in bed, dress it up real good? Where does this idol come from? It comes from the house. It comes from David's house. David and his wife have an idol in the house. David is not a perfect man. God does not owe David salvation and deliverance because David is perfect. The reason that God saves David is not because David is perfect, but because he is chosen. God has said, I have chosen you, David, to be my king. You are my servant. And because I have decreed this, because I have attached my name to you, for that reason, in that grace, I am saving you even when you don't fully deserve it. This should be very, very encouraging for us, right? Because when... when life is beating us down and when we are being pummeled by adversaries or enemies, workplace, family, even just some of the inner struggles that we have ourselves, and when we're looking for God to save us and deliver us, and when we feel like that deliverance is slow in coming, isn't it easy to begin to think, well, if I had things all put to rights, God would be answering me right now. It must be that something is wrong, and that's why God is not intervening on my behalf. He's not happy with me about something. God is frustrated with me. He's angry with me. And because of that, he's not intervening for me. He's not delivering me. What do I need to do? And so you start to turn your life upside down, thinking that if I can just get everything squared away with God, then God will be merciful, and he'll save me and deliver me. Good luck. Because David is the same man who in Psalm 19 will say things like, acquit me of hidden faults. You know what David is saying there? David is saying that even as I want to walk faithfully with the Lord recognizing that the word of the Lord is good, that it restores my soul, that it enlightens the eyes. I recognize that even as the word of God, this is Psalm 19, even as the word of God is changing me and shaping me, even then I still don't know all of the weaknesses, sins, and imperfections that I have in my life. God, would you be so gracious that even the things that I don't know, you pardon me for that. You think that you're going to be able to confess every single sin that can be leveled against your account and that in doing that, then God is going to see fit to deliver you? No. God is going to save you from your times of trial. God is going to preserve you in your times of trouble for the same reason that he preserved and saved David, not because you're perfect, 
not because you're as pure as the wind-driven snow, but because you belong to him. And because he has promised, he will show himself to be faithful. Let me quickly, though, turn to give just a word of warning. We're, we're so twisted and mixed up, even when it comes to what God reveals in his word, that we can take even the good promises and assurances of God and we can twist them and contort them into evil and wicked things. So it is gloriously true that the favor that God has for us is rooted not in anything that we do, but because of his love and kindness and because of the work that Christ has done on our behalf. We don't have to add anything to it. We don't do anything to keep it or maintain it. However, there is a huge, huge difference in depending upon God's grace and presuming upon God's grace. Depending on God's grace says, I know that if any good thing is going to happen to me, it's because God has been gracious. He has given me something that I don't deserve. Presuming upon God's grace says, it doesn't really matter what I do, God's going to be good anyway. It's his job to forgive. I don't need to worry about sin I don't need to worry about breaking his law. I don't need to worry about being unrepentant, being wayward. God's gracious. He's got it. He'll take care of it. People don't, don't presume upon God's grace. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Anyone who is humble, to enough, to, humble enough to admit their need can have the full assurance that God's grace is going to be more than sufficient. But anyone who has the arrogance or the callousness to say, well, God owes me this, or I know that God will do such and such regardless of my attitude or my response to him, you're treading on thin ice. Number three, God delivers his people by ordinary means. God delivers according to his grace. Number three, the full enjoyment of God's many acts of deliverance lies in the future. The full enjoyment, the full enjoyment of God's many acts of deliverance lies in the future. Go back with me to Psalm 59. One of the things I think that um, that we assume incorrectly when it comes to some of these psalms that David writes, especially when um, they have um, an ascription attaching it to a specific time or place or event, 
is that oftentimes we, we assume that David is writing out, penning this psalm as the events are unfolding. So David's at home. He's got guys out circling the house, waiting for him to come out so that they can snatch him, take him to Saul, so that Saul can execute him. And David sits down and he says, you know, this puts me in the mood to write a song. <laughs> or he's going out the window and all of a sudden this little tune pops into his head. Oh, that's catchy. And so he runs and when he gets to wherever he's going, he pulls out his, his pen and paper because when you're running for your life, you always have pen and paper with you. And he sits down and he starts to write Psalm 59. Oh, yeah, yeah, this will preach, right? But I don't think that's the best way to understand what we have in some of these passages. I think that there are plenty of psalms, maybe even all of them, I'm not going to say that dogmatically, but an awful lot of these seem to have been written well after the fact. Let me show you in Psalm 59 at least one indication that David is not writing this psalm, praising God for his deliverance and for being his stronghold in the thick of things, when he's on the run. If you're in Psalm 59, look down at verse 5. This is, we didn't read this verse. In the first four verses, David has been praying and asking God to act on his behalf, to deliver him because of his dire need. Verse 5, you, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all of Saul's men, all the nations. Are the nations chasing David in 1 Samuel 19? No. And then a little further, Verse 13, destroy them in wrath, destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Where's all this talk coming about nations and that all Israel would know that God rules in Jacob? I, th I think the indication is, is that David writes Psalm 59 after he is already seated on the throne. And now he's writing out of his past experience, but he sees in his personal experience with the Lord a broader framework that says, in the same way that God saved me, his king, he intends to do that for his people in a big sort of way, so that it's not just an issue of whether or not God is going to save David from Saul, but will God save Israel from the nations? This also should be very encouraging for us, because it means that even men like David probably did not fully appreciate what God was doing for them at the moment that it was actually happening. I think that when David is going out the window in the dead of night and running, 
I don't know, maybe he was, I don't know. I don't know if David was necessarily thinking, man, that was some deliverance the Lord just accomplished for me. I think he's probably thinking, where am I gonna go? And every next event that he has to be delivered, every next enemy that he has to be saved from, he has no clue how it's going to happen. He's grasping at straws, just like you and me. But God shows himself to be faithful to David, does not allow Saul or Philistines or Amalekites or Edomites or Moabites or anyone else for that matter, does not allow anyone to strike David down so that David now sits on the throne just like God had declared he would. And David sits and now he has a minute to catch his breath. And he looks back and he says, look at what God did. I was a dead man that night. I got out through a window. But that wasn't me escaping. That was the Lord saving me. On the one hand, we shouldn't be discouraged when it's difficult for us to see how God is working through normal circumstances, ordinary events, especially when we don't see what we would consider to be a miraculous saving act. We're human. Our vision is limited. We don't have God's perspective. Oftentimes, we don't know that God is saving us when he's saving us. It takes hindsight to look back and to get even a hint that that was God doing something when we didn't know what was going on. But here's the thing. The reason that we have passages like 1 Samuel 19 and Psalm 59 is so that even if we can't necessarily trace out all of the points and details, we can still say with an attitude of faith, I don't necessarily know how it is that God is going to deliver me from this enemy or this trial or this moment of suffering, but I know that he is because he did it with David, even when David didn't quite fully understand what was happening or going on, he did it to David. David's confusion was no obstacle to God. David didn't fully realize or appreciate everything that God was doing for him until well after the fact, when David could look back and with clarity of mind, having rest from all of his enemies, can say, now let me take account of what God did to bring me here. And all of the pieces then fall into place and he says, you know what? All of this was far more ordered than what, I had, than what I had in mind. How many of us here today could say the same thing on a smaller scale? We look back at times that the Lord has miraculously brought us through, that we did not know whether or not we would be able to endure or whether or not we would be able to persevere or whether or not he would be able to deliver us from this person or this situation or this problem. We get out of it, but it's not until five, ten years down the road that we look back and say, you know what? Actually, I see it now. God was working here and there and here and there again, and I didn't see it at the time. Romans 15.4 says this. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, 
that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That through endurance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. So here's one of the ways that First Samuel 19 and Psalm 59 is meant to encourage and give you hope. In the same way that God had declared a purpose, an end, glory, and ruling and reigning for David, He has promised the same thing to all of those who have been united to Christ. When Christ returns to establish His kingdom... All those who are his sons and daughters will rule and reign together with him. But just like David, our time of ruling, our time of rest is not now. It lays well ahead in the future, we think. Who knows? Maybe it's tomorrow. No complaints. (laughs) But it lies ahead of us. Until we get... To that time of ruling and reigning with Christ, you know what you can anticipate? Suffering, humiliation, injustice, affliction, sorrow, pain, grief, mourning. But the scriptures are given to us to say, but you're not alone. That's what David had. And wasn't God faithful to David? Wasn't God faithful to a man who was not perfect? To a man who was riddled with sin himself? Can't God also be faithful to you? If God was able to deliver David through ordinary and supernatural means, can't the Lord do that for you as well? If the Lord was able to bring David out of the clutches of Saul, his enemy, and one day seat him on the throne to rule and to reign as God's anointed king, can't the Lord do that for you as well? But the only way that you have that hope, the only way that you have that assurance is if you have Christ. If you're here this morning and you have not traded your life in for the life of Christ, if you have not given your life to Him to say that Christ is your Lord and Savior and King, you have no promises or no assurances. But for anyone who comes and acknowledges Christ as Lord and Master and King, not only you promise forgiveness now and the peace to know that you have been reconciled with your Creator and your Judge and your King, but you also have the further assurance that there's coming a time when you will enjoy all of the rewards that Christ has secured in the future. So for all of us, all of those who have found their hope and their security in Jesus Christ, I'll leave you with this. We can get this up on the screen. This is question number one, question and answer number one in the Heidelberg Catechism. You're probably doing your devotions there the other day, right? (laughs) Question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own but belong with body and soul 
both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also, and this is us, this is 1 Samuel 19, he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. That's what we see with David. It's what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's what we one day will fully and completely see God has been doing for us as well. Let's pray. Father, forgive us our doubt and unbelief that so frequently sees the storm and the waves and loses sight of the fact that we are safe in the power of Jesus Christ, that we have been sealed by the power of your Holy Spirit who indwells us, who guarantees that we will make it safely to the end that you, that you have appointed us. Help us, Father, with full confidence and assurance of faith to continue to chase hard after you. To even count our lives as cheap compared to the glories that are to come. Give us the ability to see all of life's circumstances with the eyes of faith so that day by day, moment by moment, We are not looking at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. Thank you for what we have in the scriptures, the encouragement to continue to endure, to persevere, because the one who promised is faithful, and he will bring it to pass. I pray, Father, that if there is anyone here this morning who has not found that rock-solid assurance that all things work together for their good because of Jesus Christ, that you would move on their hearts and minds in such a way that they would be compelled to find life in Christ. Thank you for how good you are to us through Jesus, because of Jesus, and it's in his name we pray, amen.